0: We see in 1 Samuel 26 that David was very aware of Yahweh, very aware of the Lord's presence in his life as he was again being pursued by Saul. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, in verses 19, 20, 23, and 24, David mentions Yahweh, the Lord, eight times. He's really putting his hope and putting his faith in Yahweh. And then we get to chapter 27, and there's not one mention of God. And and so this is kind of, where is God in chapter 27? And there's an old saying you might have heard that, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? Yeah, and David moved. And so as we do look at, at that first verse in chapter 27, we get a peek into David's heart. This is very unusual. Normally in a narrative, we're just told David went here, he said this. But we actually now... Get to see what David's thinking, what are his inclinations, what's in his heart. Very similar in the New Testament sometimes where Jesus will say, I know what's in your heart, or it'll say, Jesus knew what they were thinking. We, we get that here. And look at verse 1 in chapter 27, because of course, sets the theme for the whole chapter. Then David said in his heart. Now, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a great verse that you need to memorize, and David, unfortunately, was looking at his own heart. And that verse says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, but lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. David did not do that. David looked at his own heart and looked at what he wanted to do instead of trusting God. In verse 1, with the very first verse, then is is that key word because then is an action word. It's a transition word. Saul has gone back to his city, royal city. He knows again that his life was spared. And now David has to make a decision. You know, it's interesting because God does not determine the decisions you make, but He does determine the decisions that you face. And David faced the decision of what to do. Now, the prophet Gad, back in chapter 22, verse 5, had told David to stay in Judah. And he also had not just Gad the prophet with him, but he also had Abiathar the priest with the ephod to see what God would have him do. And David chose not to go to those godly men and get wise counsel. And and also we see here that David decided in his own thinking, own inclination, that he'd be better off if he could go to the land of the Philistines because then, of course, he would not have to worry about Saul chasing him. And, And if you look at the verse, it seems like, well, it worked. Got away from Saul. Didn't have to worry about, you know, hiding out anymore. But, of course, it was disastrous consequences in lying, deception, slaughter of innocent people. You know that when they went raiding they didn't have to kill everyone unless God had put a ban on those people, and he had not. But because of David's deception, he had to kill every woman and every child. He slaughtered them. In chapter 30, we're going to see in a few weeks that when the Amalekites actually raid David's city of Ziglag, and he's not there, he and his 600 men are up in Gath. They don't kill the women and children. They carry them off. That's the norm. So David ends up slaughtering innocent people because of the deception of trying to fool, of course, the people of Gath, and the king there, that he's killing other people. Also, we notice here that when David looks into his heart, he doesn't look, of course, into what God has done for him in the past. He doesn't look at what people have even said, Jonathan, you're going to be the king. You know, Abigail, you are going to be the king. Saul, you're a chosen one. He doesn't look at what God has done for him in the past. He's worried about his life now. And like us, and like we do sometimes, we get anxious, we get fearful, and we forget that God has been faithful in the past and he'll be faithful to us once more. I want to look up a few verses. So uh, in your Bibles or your Mark of the Beast, whatever you have, um, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 7, I want to give you an insight into your heart just in case we don't get too, uh, too much into this. David, what's he doing? We have to understand the heart of man. And so as we look at Mark chapter 7, And we want to go ahead and turn to verse 20. Jesus is speaking here, and he's talking about what defiles a man. So in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That describes our hearts. David's heart is no different. He's a man like we are. We tend to look at David differently, but again, he is no different than all of us. Turn to Jeremiah. I love this one because it's just short and sweet. Prophet Jeremiah kind of lays it out for us again, very, very similar to, to what we just saw. And you don't have to turn here if you don't want. Let me just give you the verse. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it? Who can understand the heart? And then let's go to Genesis 2, references to the heart in Genesis, all the way back to the front. Now, Genesis 6, of course, after the fall in Genesis 3, but before the flood. And we see here in Genesis 6, we're turning to verses 5 and 6 and understand the contrast that we serve a holy God. We serve a God that is blameless and without blemish. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. God's heart was grieved because of the sin in the world before the flood and because of the heart of man. Now, after the flood... There's only eight people alive now, Noah, his wife, and three sons and their wives. But man's heart hasn't changed. Turn over a couple chapters to chapter 8 in Genesis, Genesis 8, verse 21. Noah has actually um, gotten off the ark now and, and his family, and he's got a, a, um, a sacrifice that is going up to the Lord, and, uh, and the sweet aroma is going to the Lord, and the Lord is promising never to, to destroy everyone by a flood again. That's what the rainbow's all about, but... God still knows our hearts. Look at verse 21 in Genesis chapter 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. No flood by water. And this is the interesting I should almost say, but the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So we have to understand that we're dealing with a heart that has a bend or a tendency towards sin. And in fact, in, in Hebrew, the heart is not as we think of. We might think of the heart as more of our emotions. That's not how the Hebrew word heart means or what it means. In fact, the Hebrew word means all of your aspects of the inner man, your, your intentions, your mind, um, your, your intellect, your uh, reflections, your thinking, your conscience, your emotions, your um, passions, your determinations. And probably the best word that is, is your discernments. The discernments changes or thoughts that you make are kind of reflection of your heart. And we know that when you discern from your heart, you have to make choices about good and evil. But you know, it's not enough to know the difference anymore between right and wrong. We have to know the difference between right and almost right. That's how precise we have to be. And in fact it's interesting when you look at Titus one nine, Paul is writing to Titus. He's going to be starting churches in, on the island of Crete. Very similar to 1 Timothy 3. He's giving Titus what are the characteristics of an elder, of a pastor here. In the last part of verse 9, he tells Titus, it has to be men that can exhort or give instruction and in sound doctrine, the word of God, and also, though, refute those who contradict the word. And so we as men have to have hearts that know the word, are able to discern the word and able to come alongside, encourage, and sound doctrine. But those that are they're going against it, those that are in that small air, we have to be knowing the word well and say, that's not biblical. No, we, we cannot go along with that. We rebuke that. That is not what the word of God says. And in fact, it's interesting, Solomon, when he started out his life, and we'll, we'll see this more next year in, in 2 Samuel, Solomon started out well. Um, He started out loving God and and just wanting to please God, and God loves Solomon. In Chapter 3 of 1 Kings, God says to Solomon, you can have anything you want. What would you desire? What can I give you? And Solomon, in in, in real humility, says, these people are so numerous, I I can't rule them. Please, Lord, give me a discerning heart. Give me an understanding heart so I can understand and know how to rule these people. And God is so pleased with that, he says, I'm not only going to give you a discerning heart, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. Because he saw at this point in Solomon's life, he was on the right track to pleasing God. Unfortunately, we see that David didn't do that. We see that David, because of fear, because of not wanting to be captured by Saul, because of not trusting God, he turned to his own heart and did not follow the way of God. And we need to have, it sounds funny, but we need to have kind of a healthy distrust of our hearts, you know. We have to have a healthy distrust. We know our hearts, and we know that we can rationalize and and make things look any way we want. And so we need to learn from, from David as he made this mistake to be careful. I love what Thomas Watson, great Puritan, said, Unless we deny our own heart and will, we'll never be able to do God's will and have God's heart. So number one, our outline is pursue a theocentric heart. Number one is that we need to pursue a theocentric heart, a God-centered heart. We need to pursue the things of God and have a heart for God. God hates evil, we're to hate evil. We're to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Now, when we are pursuing God with a heart for Him, we have to have a reverence for Him. We have to have, as we say here at church, a high view of God. And I think sometimes we've lost that in our culture. We lost this idea that God is a holy God. In fact, in in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, it says, Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So reverence and awe is something we don't always think about. And the reason we do that is for our God is a consuming fire. You know, just read some of the stories in the Old Testament where people are just getting zapped. God hates sin, and he does judge. And we need to have that same attitude that our God is a consuming fire. We're to have a healthy fear and reverence of him. In Mark 4, 40 through 41, we get a view of this, get an idea of this, as the the disciples are are on the boat going across the Sea of Galilee, expert fishermen. Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and all of a sudden a storm comes up. Now, if you know anything about the geography of, of the Sea of Galilee, it's, you know, a deep lake, and storms can come in over the hills, and all of a sudden, they're in a storm that looks like it's going to take their lives, and these are experts, so this isn't just some, oh, this will pass. They know they're in danger. Jesus is sleeping, and, and the disciples are afraid they're going to drown. They wake up Jesus, like, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? We're going to drown, and, and Jesus kind of looks at him and just goes, boom, storm's over, now, this is not that one of those miracles where, like, the waves kind of just slosh back and forth, and the wind... No, it's instant. You're going to die. The next moment, it's peace, calm. There's no storm. And Jesus says to them in Mark 4, 40, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And verse 42 says, and they were very much afraid. Now, the storm's over. So why are they very much afraid? Well, they were very much afraid, and they said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. They were more afraid that they realized that they had God in the boat. The Holy One of God was in their boat, and that caused them to be more fearful than of drowning, which before they were so afraid of. They understood who God was, who Christ was, and had a fear. Um, In Luke 5, verses 4 through 8, another situation, the disciples, they've been fishing all night. If you know anything about fishing the Sea of Galilee, at nighttime the fish actually come into shore. That's why you fish at night, because that's easier to catch the fish. They're inshore, but in the daytime, they're going to go right back out to the deep part of the lake. So it's, it's the next day, and, and they fish, haven't caught much, and Jesus is teaching in the boat, and like all rabbis, he's sitting actually in the boat. And then he finally turns to Peter and says, hey, throw your net out again. And Peter said, Rabbi, we've been fishing all night. We didn't." He goes, but for you, I, I will do that. So Peter and James and John, they throw the net out, and of course, the catch is astronomical. It's a miracle. It's not just like, oh, they caught a couple of fish. They caught more fish than they've ever caught before, even when they were fishing at the right time of day. And Peter stops and looks at Jesus, realizing who Jesus is, and says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter realizes his sin in light of the Holy One of God, and he doesn't want to be in his presence. And we have to have that same attitude, that God is a holy God. Number two on your outline, I want you to put, have a theocentric reverence. It's a word we've lost. Have a theocentric reverence. We have to have a reverence for God. God is holy. And God himself said in 1 Peter, you are to be holy for I am holy. We have to have that reverence. Little A under number two, put down, little A, put off unrighteousness. If we're going to understand the holiness of God and be holy like God, we have to put off all unrighteousness. Now, when I when I say put off unrighteousness, I'm thinking in terms of like get out of there. Turn it off. Don't go there. Throw it away. Have nothing to do with it. Think of Joseph. What did Joseph do when he was in a compromising position? He didn't try to talk Potiphar's wife and say, "Well, you know what? I don't think this is a great idea." Joseph fled. He got out of there because he's putting off all unrighteousness. He's separating himself from things of the world. Psalm 11 says, blessed is the man, it's a great verse to memorize, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There has to be a separation. Now, I'm not talking about, obviously, you don't talk to non-Christians. We're to be salt and light. We understand that, but you've got to understand, again, here's that discernment, have a discerning heart. When are you being the influence, and when are you being influenced? We need to separate ourselves from the world. We need to be able to say, I'm not going there. That's not a good place to be. And so we understand that Daniel did the same thing when he was to eat the king's food in Babylon. And he said, I can't do that. That's food that's been sacrificed to idols. That would be defiling my God. And God blessed that, and he didn't have to. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, were to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, and they would show him honor and worship or reverence. They wouldn't do it. And even if they hadn't been saved out of the fiery furnace, that's still the right thing. they wouldn't compromise. they wouldn't go along with the world system to be holy like God is holy. we have to have a separation from the things of this world. Or look at Noah. in fact, let's turn there let's go to uh, go to Hebrews chapter eleven Hebrews chapter eleven. Let's look at verse seven. Now we don't know who is the author of Hebrews, it's Paul, but we're not sure and uh, Hebrews chapter eleven verse 7, is interesting because it's that great chapter on faith. I love this chapter, you know, by faith, Abraham, by faith, you know. And so, here we are in chapter 11, verse 7, and we get a little picture into Noah. And Noah's an interesting character. He's an Old Testament character, so we all don't know as much always about them. But it says here, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. I like that word, unseen, like It's never rained, okay? There's going to be a flood. Build a boat. That's why we don't need a boat. It's never rained. But events I've seen in reverent fear. Do you get that? There's the holiness, right? Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned, he separated himself. You know, he was probably preaching while he's building this ark, and he's being made fun of, like, what are you doing, you idiot? What are you building this? what, What is this? And he's preaching the gospel to them, separating himself from this world, and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah showed reverence by obedience to God. We show reverence when we obey the precepts of God's word. That set Noah apart. He's known as a man of righteousness. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, again, we get some more kind of detail about Noah's life. It says he was righteous, blameless, and walked with God. Wouldn't you love to have that as your resume at your funeral? My dad, my grandfather, righteous, blameless walk with God. Probably won't get the walked with God one because there are only two men in the whole Bible that it says they walked with God. Noah and Enoch, and Enoch, of course, was taken off this earth. But blameless because he was willing to set himself apart and separate from the world. Righteous because he was willing to, in reverence, obey the commands of God. We want to be more like Noah. And we have to remember, men, that God's not concerned about your happiness, okay? He's concerned about your holiness. That's what matters, not how happy you are on this earth, because we're going to obviously have trials, and we're going to have those tough times, but he's much more concerned about your holiness. Um, Turn to 2 Corinthians. Let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians. We know for sure, okay? Paul wrote that one, all right? And, of course, Corinth is a very ungodly city, and Paul wrote more than two letters to them, only two we have that we know are actually part of the canon, but in chapter 6, he's been talking about being holy, and he had to do this a lot in Corinth, because it was a very unholy church there, but look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, since we have these promises, back to chapter 6, the promises of, of setting yourself apart, being holy, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So you bring holiness in completion to the fear of God by obedience to the Word of God. And this idea of of bringing it can also mean in the same sense you can talk about finishing it or, or completing it. But as we desire as men of God to be more like Christ, we have to think in terms of how can I be more holy? What can I do in my life to bring that to completion? I love Ephesians 1, 4. Again, a great verse to to memorize, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God chose us, just in case you're Arminian and didn't get this one right. Not Armenian, that's different, okay? You did not pick God, okay? God picked you. And don't ask why God picked you, because then you have to look at your heart and say, oh, he made a mistake, right? But God, in his grace and mercy, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, he set you apart Okay, for his work. And so that is called justification. When God shows you to be set apart for him, you became justified. You are now in Christ. When you ever see that in the word, it says in Christ, underline that. In Christ means that you've repented of your sins, that you are following him, you're denying yourself, and he's your Lord and Savior. And so God shows you before the foundation of the world, not only to be part of his family, to be holy and blameless, as Ephesians 1.4 says, And then, of course, we're in the middle of this thing. It's called sanctification. When he takes us home, it'll be glorification. So we've been justified if we're in Christ, if here tonight, and you know the Lord, you're in Christ, you you are saved, you're justified. But that doesn't mean you rest in that. Beware of that. You know that let go and let God, that's not scriptural. Can't find it in the Bible. This idea of like, well, I can just kind of rest in grace. No, okay? It's a battle. It's a war. Um, It's called sanctification, and that's what we have in front of us. And unfortunately, David didn't separate himself. David did the opposite. David moved to an idolatrous land where he was living with idolatrous people at one time. So he did the opposite of what he should have done. We need to separate ourselves. So the last thing we want to look at here is sanctification. And, and I wish I could say to you, like, you know, guys, it's going to get easier. Okay, I'm 63, and it just gets easier as, as you're a Christian, and, and it's just it's a piece of cake. Just do whatever you want. Don't worry about it. It's the opposite, actually. I find as the older I get, I'm much more aware of the sin in my life and much more ashamed of the sin in my life, and I find it's harder. and that's what sanctification is all about. Um, in fact, number three, I want you to put down: be a theocentric man sanctified. Be a theocentric man sanctified. It, it's a battle. It's a, it's a war. And you know when it starts? The moment you wake up, the battle starts. And you know what it ends when you go to bed tonight and it's going to start tomorrow again. It's like going to work, okay? But you have to battle the sin in your heart and in your life. And I love 1 Timothy 1.15, great verse to memorize. Not the last book that Paul wrote of the 13 he wrote. 2 Timothy was, but it's one of the last books. And he wrote, it's a trustworthy statement, full of, of truth and acceptance, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul is calling himself the worst sinner that ever lived. Now, he didn't say that early in his life. If you look at some of his earlier books he wrote in Galatians and those, he doesn't talk about how bad a sin is, but he realizes that as against the end of life, that he is a sinner. And we all understand that the more and more we grow, the more and more we see how much we fail and how far, far we, uh, we fall short. Um, the other verse that's a great one for memory is, of course, and I think you probably know these, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You know, for by grace we've been saved through faith, and that's not of our own doing. It's a free gift to God, not as a result of works that no man should boast. That's the justification part. But don't ever leave off verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created for Christ Jesus, for good works, which God before beforehand for him. In fact, it's interesting. Not only did he choose us to be part of his family, but he has the good works for us already laid out after we became saved. And that's, of course, the sanctification that we're in right now. And the one thing about sanctification, and this is the good news, it's not about perfection. If it is, we'd all fall short. Sanctification is not about perfection. It's about persistence. It's about battling. It's about continuing the fight, never giving up, day in and day out. Turn with me to Ephesians 6, because I think Paul lays it out pretty well here as we look at the full armor of God. I'm sure you're probably familiar with these passages in Ephesians 6. Turn to verse 10. If we're going to battle... We have to have that warlike mentality. We can't think that things are going to just be easy today and tomorrow and so on. That's not how the enemy thinks, and we have to know the enemy. And Paul lays it out for us, who the enemy is. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And this is the end of, of this great book, Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. We, we can't rely on our own strength. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's the enemy, the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, things that we can see that are visible, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the the tough thing is the battle is not always that simple to see because the forces are not going to just look at you and tell you, hey, I'm the bad guy, I'm the evil one, Um, I'm here to try to make you sin. It's not that easy. Fortunately, though, Paul does talk in the rest of of this section about the armor we have to put on. And if you jump to verse 17, the only one that's offensive, it's not the first one there, and take the helmet of salvation, the only offensive weapon, all the rest are defensive weapons we put on to put off the, the attacks, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that's the only offensive weapon we have, is this book right here. And the sword they're talking about is actually a short sword. It's more like a dagger. So you're ready. To, to when the enemy comes, the spiritual battles are on, you've got the sword, you've got the word of God. In fact, what did Jesus use when he was tempted three times in the desert by, by Satan? The word of God, all three times. Satan gave him a temptation, uh, but the word of God says. Three times, and each time, that fended off Satan's attack. So, so we have to understand who the enemy is. It's spiritual darkness, it's Satan and his forces. And We have to have the sword and all the other equipment on First John also gives us a little bit of a picture of the battle we have ahead of us. Turn over to 1 John. This is John the Apostle's first of three short letters. And in 1 John, we're going to turn to chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Now, John is writing here. Um, he's probably the pastor at this point in time of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus had an ancient history. Paul originally started that church, had been there three years preaching. He hands out the baton to Timothy when you read First and Second Timothy, Timothy's the pastor of Ephesus. And then later, John the Apostle, before he uh, has to go to the island of Patmos, he's, uh, he's probably the pastor at this time. But look what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty easy. If you're loving the world and the things of the world, you're not in Christ. You don't have God the Father as part of your Agenda. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There are three things there that we have to be aware of that we're going to have to fight. The first one there in the middle of verse 16 says, The desires of the flesh. New American Standard calls it the lust of the flesh. And that's greed. Greed will probably be the biggest sin. In end times, and and even in the Bible, it talks about that we will have to battle against greed. The second one says the desires of the eyes, which is actually the lust of the eyes, and that would be girls, pornography, sensuality, sexual (coughs) evil, okay? The third one, when it says the pride of life, that would be glory. (coughs) That would be the idea that I want to be in the front. I want to have that position. I want to be the one that's looked on. Those three areas, greed, girls, and glory, you'll have to battle every day. Some days one will be worse, the other days others, but we have to put on the full arm of God and be a theocentric man with a a heart and a reverence for God if we're going to be able to not live in this world and the things of this world. And it's not getting any better. If you believe so, just look at the article at San Juan Hills High School if you haven't seen that, and that'll point to things are getting worse by the day. Philippians 3 is, is a great chapter. You don't have to turn there. Let me just kind of summarize it for you. Paul is talking about sanctification. It's a little bit difficult to understand, but he, but he says, brethren, not that I've already acquired it. This is Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Great verses. Memorize them. Philippians 3, Paul says, brethren, not that I've already acquired it. Now, if you had Paul here and you could do a Q&A, oh boy, we could ask him a ton of questions. This is the question I would ask him. What do you do? In your battle against sin what do you do what's the game plan this is what Paul says brother not that I've already obtained sanctification but this one thing I do okay it's like okay what is it but this one thing I do I forget what lies behind you cannot live in the past whether it's sin or successes you have to forget everything in the past it's been forgiven Forget any successes or good things that happened. Those are only going to distract from what's going on now. So Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching or straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. There it is again, that persistence. Paul says, I press on. And what does he press on for in verse 14? He presses on for the goal of the prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing on to be more like Christ, more like God so that when he does get to heaven, he'll be able to enjoy that glorification with God. Great verses, okay? What does Paul do? He presses on. We have to continue to press on and reach forward and go for holiness and go after what God would have us do. And this pressing on is, again, that lifetime thing. We're always pressing on. If we're not doing anything, we're losing, right? If if we just think, today, no, we have to constantly have that attitude, the warlike attitude, of of pressing on and if you're not pursuing holiness as a pattern of your life you may not be in Christ I mean I know that's a hard thing to say but if you're not pursuing holiness if that's not something that you're even aware of that you know I've sinned in my life and I need to fight this battle I need to be more holy and more like Christ you have to really check your heart and see am I really in Christ am I really someone that's set apart for him that's a scary thing The last thing you have there, I think on the bottom of your sheet, should be RPM squared. Nope, didn't get there. So write this down. RPM squared. Don't worry if you're not a math person, it's easy, okay? You'll be fine. But in this battle, in this war, in this military endeavor, we know we're going to be fighting sin the rest of our lives. So what do we have to do? It's simple, but it's not. The R stands for read the word. Now, when I say read the word, I just hope you don't go, well, yeah, I did the DBR every day, and I did First Samuel 27. That's not what we mean by reading the Word. Reading the Word means you have such a passion for God's Word that you feed on it. It's not like you read it to check it off. You read it for the depth and to grow because you want to be more like God. You want to know your God, and it has to be more important to you than anything else in your life, any idols of your heart sports, movies, TV, whatever, the Word of God has to be the most important thing, more important than the food. You probably don't miss a meal in the morning. I'm sure I don't, but that's how the Word of God has to be. You have to have a passion for it, a desire for it, and you have to diligently study. It takes time. It takes work. It's not something you just read and check off, okay? So develop that. If you don't have that, pray for that. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you such a desire, such a passion for God's Word. You can't wait until you get up in the morning and you can dig in and, and read a book over and over. Take a, a book like Ephesians and just, you know, read through the six chapters, read through this, you know, just over and over so you get that depth and that joy of the Word of God and it becomes part of your everyday battle. The second thing when looking at being an RPM man is you need to pray. You need to be a man of prayer. And being a man of prayer is something that is not easy for all of us. I know my wife is a prayer warrior and When we pray she puts me to shame i go to the depths with her and then and then i pray and by praying what we mean is that you start your prayer life the moment you wake up matthew henry which is he was a great puritan he wrote a book called methods of prayer and in that book he said when you wake up the first thought you want to have is of god i mean just the very first thing you wake up you want to think of god and you want to pray you want to start your day with prayer before the enemy even has a chance to mess with your mind You want to pray and ask God to protect you, pray with your wife, pray with your kids. You want to pray for God to lead you and to be a light and witness and salt for Him. And you want to prepare yourself for the day's battle, the moment you wake up. The Word says that Jesus used to get up early in the morning and go off and pray. And if the Lord can do it, I think it's probably a pretty good thing for us too. Matthew Henry then says during the day we need to be in prayer. Now, when Paul said pray without ceasing, he didn't mean that, you know, you go around 24 hours a day and pray, but he did mean to have a harder attitude of prayer. And you can't always pray you're in the office or something, but what happens is things come to your mind, pray about them. okay? Something happens, pray for that person. If you can get time away, great, go get away and, and, and 15 minutes, your break or whatever, and pray. So we have to have an attitude of praying throughout the day. And then, of course, at nighttime, you go to bed, end with prayer. Every night, end with prayer. Thank the Lord for the day. Thank the Lord that he gave you that ability to be his image bearer, to be his ambassador. And, and you know, repent of anything that that sin in your life that you didn't and get ready for the next day because it's gonna happen again. So we need to be praying throughout the day. The moment we wake up throughout the day and then when we go to bed at night, as Christ did, Christ was a man of prayer. The first M is memorize the word. You've, you've kind of heard, I've tried to kind of make that point. Memorize this verse. This is a great verse to memorize because memorizing the word of God is the weapon we use against the devil. In fact, Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word I have hid in my heart, so I may not sin against thee. If we're going to stop sin in our lives, we have to have the word of God, as Jesus did, like we talked about in the temptation. In fact, it's interesting, too, when you look at Psalms, we talked about Psalm 1.1, Psalm 2, verse 2, and you add that, Afterward, blessed is the man, not blessed happiness, but blessed spiritually is this man who doesn't walk or stand and say anything. And then verse 2 says, but on the word of God, he meditates day and night. That's why he's blessed, because he separated himself from the word, world, excuse me, and then he has the word of God, and he meditates on it day and night. Memorize the word, know the word, and then finally the second M is meditate on the word. To meditate, to chew on it, to think about it. You know, think about the scripture. If you're someone that's prone more to anger, it would be a good idea to memorize James one nineteen and 20. For this you know, brethren, you must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so that might be a good verse to memorize. You're at a meeting, you're getting kind of like, my boss is just not really wise here. And instead of just spouting out, you're thinking, okay, Lord, help me to be wise. Help me to listen, and then at the right time to speak, and do so in a way that honor you and not lose my temper and be angry. And so I wish, again, I could tell you that things are going to get easier and just relax and, you know, enjoy God and sit back, but that's not how it's going to be. And if any of you tonight are not sure if you're in Christ, it's, that's possible. Um, please talk to, to your leaders tonight or talk to me afterwards, but you need to understand that it's a battle. And if you're not feeling that battle, you, know, you, need, you really need to, to up your, your spiritual kind of uh, gears to, to battle sin every day and to understand that uh, as God's men, you have great responsibilities, great responsibilities to be godly husbands, godly fathers, Godly workers and co-workers. Let's pray. Father God, as we close tonight, I uh, thank you for these men. Thank you for their commitment to you and in being in a group and discussing your word. And I pray, Lord, that these men's love may abound still more and more and their love would be in real knowledge and in all discernment. And Lord, that they would approve the things that are excellent in order to be more sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And they would be filled with the fruit of your righteousness, which only comes through your Son and only comes to the glory and praise of you. And Lord, says, we look at the glory ahead that you have for us, we're so grateful that you're coming again and that you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And in the end, Lord, there will be no longer any more sin or pain or crying or mourning, but all those things will pass away. And Christ himself has said, I am coming quickly. And Lord, we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May we be men that are set apart for your kingdom, holy and pure for your glory, Lord, we pray. Amen.